So with your Bible open to Matthew chapter 18, I'd invite you to stand and let us read together a few verses there. Stand with me if you're able in Matthew chapter 18. Let's read verses 21 through the end of the chapter together. The Word of God says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you that debt because you pleaded with me, and you should, and you should not And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Matthew chapter 18 is the fourth great discourse in Matthew. Those singled out bodies of proclamation and sermons, basically, that Christ preached as He walked this earth. We've remarked throughout the book of Matthew, there's a theme, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God provides a motif to organize, to order, to understand, and to bind together all of, virtually all of the book of Matthew, and certainly all of Jesus' proclamation. And this section of Scripture is no exception. As we mentioned in this fourth discourse in the past, the theme could be called the church. Christ has spoken prior to this moment to a number of different things. We saw that in the great Sermon on the Mount. We saw that in a kind of proto-commissioning in Matthew chapter 10. We saw that when He expounded the constitution of the kingdom of God in Matthew 13. And now we see he, He is unfolding and unveiling the intricacies of the relationships that are defined by His person and work in what we know now as the church of Jesus Christ. The fourth discourse in Matthew could be divided, this, that is, this sermon on the church, perhaps into four sections under adjectives that characterize the members of Christ's church. Or perhaps better termed in context, four attributes that characterize the loyal subjects of the kingdom of God. 
run the fourth one this morning, but let me give you the first three in review. First of all, the subjects of the kingdom of God, the loyal subjects of our King and Heavenly Father are lowly. We find this in Matthew 18, 1 through 4. The disciples ask Him a question that betrayed their pride, and Christ answers in verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Subjects of the king are lowly. Secondly, loving. Jesus uses the same example to illustrate the lovingness that the body of Christ ought to have one to another and to the least of these. He says in verse 5, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. In recent weeks, we mentioned that it is a mark of the Christian church of all ages that she reach out with the loving arms of Christ to children and the childlike because loyal subjects to the King of Kings are lowly and loving. Number three, in verse 15, we find this instruction related to church discipline and ordering our affairs. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And we remarked here in passing that that evidence of two or three witnesses Witnesses is jurisprudence language throughout Scripture. And it tells us that the subjects of the King of Kings are lawful. They don't do things on a whim or according to their best ideas, but they hold themselves accountable to Christ's terms in dealing even with their own issues and problems. This brings up the fourth adjective that describes loyal subjects of the Kingdom of God this morning. And perhaps, just to use another L word, we could list them as long-suffering Long-suffering, that is, the people of God are lowly, loving, lawful, and long-suffering. This is clear when Peter asks this question, and the answer comes in the form of a direct response and also a parable in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, to Christ that is, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. The people of God are indeed long-suffering. The loyal subjects of the kingdom of God are lowly, loving, lawful, and long-suffering. Most attention, the most attention in this sermon, however, is given to this final category, and especially to forgiveness. This charge to forgive is related to this fourth characteristic in the parable, the long-suffering of God's people. John Calvin identifies three points, three points of great contrast in this parable of what we've come to call the unforgiving servant. There is the contrast of the master with the servant, a vast difference that is between the king as master and his servant who disregards in unforgiveness the grace that is extended to him. There's also the contrast of a large sum of money that he was forgiven compared to, contrasted to a small sum of money or an ordinary sum that he would not forgive. And finally, there's a contrast between the extraordinary kindness that God the Father has shown us in the forgiveness of our sins ultimately with the extreme cruelty 
of denying grace to a lesser degree on the heart of the servant. There are also three basic categories of characters to understand our story, this parable. And just to give you a little bit more organization, in verse 35 we read the following. It says, or 34, And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. To help us understand the meaning of this story, verse 35 gives us the characters. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Thus we have the characters of the story. The king as the heavenly father. Number two, the servant, the first servant, as professing believers or disciples of Christ. And number three, fellow servants, representing various relationships, brothers, between brothers and the like, in the kingdom. A summary let me give you this statement, a summary of the theme of this portion of discourse number four could perhaps be stated as follows. A chief hallmark of Christ's church is our identity as the lavishly forgiven. You and I in Christ are the lavishly forgiven. And as such, we are, if we are in obedience to Christ, in good standing in His kingdom, the lavishly forgiving ones. Let me say that again. A chief hallmark of Christ's church is our identity as the lavishly forgiven and as such, the lavishly forgiving ones. We've mar- remarked in a previous message that the mark, another hallmark of Christ's church is that we are lowly in heart such that we reach out to the disadvantaged, the underprivileged, to the least of these, the weak and the helpless. This is true. But right alongside this truth of the lowliness and loveliness of God's people and the lawfulness as well is our indefatigable, forgiving spirit. When we are walking in the Spirit, when we embrace our sanctification, we can't help but forgive offenses over and over again. In the course of this message, We'll receive instruction from the Word of God on how to help you and me if we're having trouble even doing that today. Is there any hardness, resentment, difficulty, anger, anxiety in your own soul even this morning as you search your heart in light of truth? I have held something against my brother or sister in Christ. I have to be honest with you. If so-and-so member of my family walks into my presence, my heart doesn't leap it sinks. I recoil. I have boundaries. I have walls. I have difficulty interacting because, don't misunderstand my situation, I have good reason. And then you proceed to talk about a hurt or offense or an issue, a calumny, a sin, something that happened in the course of your relationship. What I just described to you generally by way of example is exactly the kind of thing that tests the metal of our loyalty as a subject to the kingdom of God, our faithfulness to one another in light of what God has forgiven of us. Let me give you a heading this morning. The long-suffering servant understands the following. Three things briefly this morning, then we'll expand. The long-suffering servant of Jesus Christ, of Father God, understands first that the king is to be feared. 
Secondly, the long-suffering servant understands the weight or the value, the significance of his own debt. And thirdly, the long-suffering servant understands the value of forgiveness. Let's read again our text this morning, verses 21 through 26 of Matthew 18. While we're reading here, our next text, in a brief moment, we'll turn to is Proverbs 20. In verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. The proverbial, indefinite, 490. Then verse 23 proceeds with this story, which illustrates a kingship, an authority, and a position of a sovereign and a magistrate who is to be feared. Therefore, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Turn with me to a cross reference in the scriptures in Proverbs chapter 20. There's three verses in this proverb that demonstrate to us awesome character character traits of the God that we serve that we ought to keep in mind as context for Matthew 18. In Proverbs 20, verses 8 through 10, we have the context here as a king. We, of course, have these statements of truths and Proverbs and segments of wisdom that are given. But notice the theme in these three verses and how it relates to our text this morning. Verse 8. A king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. Verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Verse 10. Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. We find three aspects of truth in Proverbs chapter 20 that we ought to remember when we consider God as judge. And the reckoning situation that sets the stage, the setting, in this parable. First of all, there is a king who sits on a throne. And in our proverb in Matthew 18, he is represented as the king of kings, the one who is perfect in his judgment, who sees all, knows all who has eyes of omniscience, all-knowing, that search not only all events and circumstances throughout history, but every thought and corner and recess and intent of the heart. This king sits on the throne of judgment and winnows all evil with his eyes. The term winnow is an agricultural term that refers to the separation of two parts that are mixed together. The winnowing fork, as it were, much like a pitchfork, would go under the wheat and the chaff, It would throw it into the air, and the summer breezes would blow away the lighter, expendable chaff. And then the nutritious portion, suitable for eating, of the wheat would fall on the threshing floor. And this is the picture. The winnowing eye 
can separate right down to the thought and the intent of the heart that winnowing eye of the King of Kings between the evil and the good, the just and the unjust, the valuable and the expendable, that which is deserving of fire and of judgment, and that which is worthy of His presence. This is the fearful recognition of a God whom we all must account to, who stands in judgment over all the universe and has decreed a day of reckoning. It is appointed to us to die and then the judgment. Secondly, the situation gets even more sober as we consider verse 9. Who can say, rhetorical question, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin. Who can say such a thing? I'll leave that question hanging to be answered in the rest of this message and draw your attention to verse 10. Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. The long-suffering servant understands that the king is to be feared. The king has a day of settling of accounts, an inevitable reckoning. We see this later in the gospel Evidenced in that final day where the wheat, I'm sorry, the sheep and the goats are separated. We see it as Christ unfolds his gospel truth in the separation of the wheat and the tares. The wheat is stored in the barns representing the presence and the new heavens and new earth and what they contain in joyous harvest and celebration. The tares represent all who did not pass. By the judges, under the judge's winnowing eyes in good standing, and are thus bound like the chaff or like the tares, and then set on fire, representing the hell that all deserve and all will earn if they are not hid in Christ Jesus their Lord. The winnowing eye of the omniscient judges and separates between those two. And then in the book of Proverbs, it declares the audacity of self-contained holiness claims. The audacity of a heart who would receive great forgiveness from his master, but then turn around and out of selfishness, hold a small debt against his neighbor. This is the kind of unequal standard that is an absolute abomination of our king who is to be feared. Our king is perfect in his justice. And in that picture of balances, we have the ancient uh, reference point for jurisprudence, for just dealings. On the one side, we have a fixed measure or a weight. And on the other side, we have that which is being measured. And the king requires this perfect, uh, substantive righteousness. And as we set our righteousness, as it were, on the other side, who can measure out the balances. All of us receive the indictment that Nebuchadnezzar did, or Belshazzar, Belshazzar. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. So that question is hanging out there. Uh, how can we be not found wanting, as it were? Well, one way that we demonstrate lack of humility, lack of lowliness, lack of lawfulness, and lack of long-suffering in our own heart is to show that balance unequal when we do not appreciate the grace of forgiveness. God, by His nature and His character, decrees standards of impeccable justice. 
And there is no way, even though we may fool others, to escape His winnowing eye. This is a theme that we see at the beginning of this parable. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But prior to that, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. The long-suffering servant understands the king is to be feared because he is one who settles all his accounts, has perfect and omniscient knowledge, and has an impeccable standard of jurisprudence. Secondly, the king is to be feared under that first point, because everything in our lives is collateral. If you go get a loan from a bank, they may say, what can you give me as a good faith commitment that you will pay this loan back? If you do not pay this loan back in full, I will keep this asset or something of yours as collateral. Notice the total collateral claim that God the King has on us as illustrated in this, pro, in this parable, verse 25. And since he, this is the servant who owed so much, could not pay his master, could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his face imploring him. This again speaks to the power and to the nature and character of the king that is to be feared. When we stand in his presence, we must realize that he has total claim to everything of ours. We don't come to the table of negotiation to God Almighty and say, I'll tell you what, I'll give you my heart if you give me salvation. Now we talk about these kinds of exchanges, but in truth, the, song, or the hymn is true. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. When we offer to the Lord's Lord our heart, we are not offering something that we have protected and built and is great and meritorious in and of itself and is a valuable treasure that God would like to own if only you would please share it with Him. When we come to Christ, we come with a wicked, depraved, sin-laden, decaying heart that is lost in our transgressions and woefully, woefully disqualified from the presence of the Lord and only fit for hell. This is the condition that we come to Him in. He has total collateral rights to everything. And not just us, not just our well-being, but even beyond that, this man is held accountable for his sin in such a way that his environment, relationships, his life, his livelihood will be affected. He will be sold into slavery on account of this debt, he and his wife and his children. The long-suffering servant understands that the king is to be feared. He has nothing in, his, in himself that represents leverage. At first in our story, the servant did the right thing. What did he do? He fell on his knees, imploring him. This is a picture of utter surrender to total mercy. And this is a fitting picture for how we, you and I, approach or ought to approach the throne of grace. Finally, under our king is to be feared. Consider this, he has ultimate authority. He has ultimate authority both to enforce 
to demand that this loan be paid. And if it is not, then it must be paid in full by the suffering and condemnation of his subject who owes him this great debt. And, and gloriously so, he also has the authority to grant forgiveness, to extend mercy, to free his servants from the obligation of this crushing debt that he owes his master. Thus, in this picture of knees bent, groveling and begging, as it were, before that one who is totally authoritative, we have a good picture of the gospel. We ought to see ourselves and remind ourselves of that moment of our surrender to Jesus Christ often by bowing our knees. And as we first did when we implored Him for His mercy, gratefully and thankfully, worshipfully, uh, extol Him for what He has granted us. This King has absolute right, the absolute right to demand full payment right now, without exception, of every sinner who's ever touched this planet, breathed one of His breaths of air. Conversely, our unforgiveness, think of this, presumes for ourselves the holy authority of God. In other words, we've just considered for a moment the authority of God to demand total payment right now without exception for everyone. This is the kind of authority that is unique to the Lord. It's an authority that we do not share. Now, if we, as it were, see ourselves on the throne room and elbow aside the right to demand total payment right now to our brother who owes a debt against us, notice how presumptuous the situation has become. This is to say, unforgiveness in the heart of the forgiven presumes that we are authoritative like the Lord. Suddenly we are no longer lowly, we are no longer loving, we are no longer lawful, and no longer long-suffering. But we are our own authority. We are lawless. We are gods in and of ourselves. And we feel and exercise our attitude as though we had the right to demand by sheer force everything of this lesser and menial debt that another servant owes us. Notice the attitude and actions of the servant, the unfaithful one. It says, So his fellow servant fell down, verse 29, and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. Notice the exact same beseeching language that this other servant now asks the servant. Verse 30, He, this unfaithful servant, refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. He forcefully invoked his, what he thought was, right to enforce. Prior to that, he was cruel and wicked. He had seized him. He began to choke him. And he said to him, imagine this, your, your hands, your fingers are laced around the neck of your fellow human being, your neighbor whom you're called to love, even the enemy perhaps, but you're still called to love. And you shake him by the throat. You jerk him by his collar. And you say, pay me, pay me what you owe. The one who had the right to exercise this kind of authority over you did not do so if you are a believer or a professing one today. He did not do so, but He granted you grace and mercy. Who are you? 
Who am I? Who are we in unforgiveness to act in such a cruel manner to anyone else who owes an infinitely lesser debt to us? The long-suffering servant understands the king is to be feared, and he is fearful to usurp his authority. Secondly, this morning, the long-suffering servant understands the weight of his own debt. Verses 24 and 28 contrast two numerical standards for debt. We'll explore these in their historical context, and it's going to be an eye-opener for us this morning. Verse 24, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Without a little study or a little historical background that may not be so meaningful to us, after all, how much money is 10,000 talents? Well, first of all, notice in the text that that's, that contrasted to another number. Verse 28, But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So we got these two numbers. The first debt was 10,000 talents. The second was a hundred denarii. If we turn over to Matthew chapter 20, notice this language. This helps us again to establish the context of these monetary denominations. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And thus proceeds another parable where each of the laborers all received one denarius. This was just. This was a good living wage. That is, in this time when this parable was written, you earned, if you were an average worker, about a denarius a day. So what is a talent? A talent is about 6,000 denarii. Now, one of the greatest proofs of my own fallibility is my math skills. So I worked on this a little bit, and I double-checked the numbers and cross-referenced a few sources, but I may still be off on this one. So I did some multiplication and dividing, and I figured this out. I translated maybe like a living wage. Let's just work with the $50,000 number, pretty decent wage for someone Well, if one day is about $200 a day, then the lesser servant or the the, uh, lesser debt uh, represents about $25,000. But the greater debt is multiplied many times over and represents the title of this message, 12 billion, with a B, 12 billion dollars. So let's read this, adjusted for inflation in our modern context, translated Matthew 18, 24, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him $12 billion. Contrast that to another debt, about six months' wages, uh, proportionally speaking, the other servant who owed him 100 denarii, or $25,000. History records that in the average year, Herod the Great received in revenue about 900 talents. Remember, 10,000 talents is the debt. Herod himself would take a decade plus to pay off this talent, even with his unjust confiscatory taxation and all the wealth he could boast as a despotic potentate taxing from everybody, from the rich down to the poor. If we translated this debt, this $12 billion into year's wages, and this is where my math can get a little fuzzy, Double-check me, 230,000 years, 230,770 years wages. 
230,770 years wages was owned by the first debtor in this parable. And the second debtor owed six months wages. The weight of our debt. We've just seen and expounded on for the purposes of the illustration the monetary denominations that are meant to communicate something to us. If we, brothers and sisters in Christ, have been forgiven our sin debt against our Almighty Judge and Lord, if we have been forgiven that, it is similar to and infinitely more than being forgiven of 230,770,000 years worth of wages. Would we ever be able to pay off our sin debt? Absolutely not. Never if we were given all those years. Because the nature of our debt even goes beyond this illustration. It was a debt we simply could not pay aside from eternal suffering in hell itself. Thus it is so helpful for us in contemplating our own ability to forgive, our calling to forgive, and our correction to a heart of forgiveness, it is so important that we contemplate the weight of our debt. And we've just considered it in light of the illustration by wage comparison, or the vertical debt, if you will. That is the debt we owe to God, the vertical debt. Secondly, let's consider, by contrast, the horizontal debt, the debt one person might owe to another in this life. Now, if I told you, having not provided that prior context, if I told you that, you know what, Uh, Joel has borrowed from me, my brother, a lot, and he's racked up a $25,000 debt, I just think that's absolutely unreasonable. That is crazy. I can't believe my brother owes that kind of money to me. On the face of it, without the prior context, $25,000 feels like a big obligation. It feels, certainly to us, like a significant amount of debt. This note should not go unnoticed. That is to say that the things that we are called to forgive of each other feel certainly significant to us. God has called us to forgive each other of things that are more than misunderstandings. Or, I'm sorry I made you feel that way, But my intent honestly wasn't to harm. Well, I forgive you. What have you just forgiven? You've forgiven this person for communicating a misunderstanding that is different than their intent. It really is nothing. It's negligible. Those are things we shouldn't even remember. It should just roll like water off a duck's back anyway. But in the context of Christian forgiveness, we have become so petty as a culture in harboring and holding unforgiveness and records of debt between each other that those small things are magnified to to, uh, blinding offenses that get the gossip reels going and get the anger wheels churning. But notice in the context of this parable, we're not talking about a demand to forgive something that was something that was said that made me feel a certain way. We are actually to call, called to forgive way above and beyond that standard and that measure. Real, legitimate wrongs against us. Now, in light of our prior example, proportionally, it is nothing. Yet, for us, in our humanness, it is something. Consider Matthew chapter 6, 
for context, Christ has already shared these words with us in this gospel. Verse 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There is an unbreakable, there is an undeniable link between our tendency, between our heart to forgive and the appreciation for the forgiveness that we have received. When we consider the weight of our debt, how can we not but forgive, yes, legitimate, but, in, but by proportion, infinitely less offenses? There was a note in my Bible I found helpful. It states the following, commenting on those verses I just read. Christians forgive others in response to God's forgiveness. But if they do not forgive others, they cannot claim God's forgiveness for themselves. Christians forgive others in response to God's forgiveness, but if they do not forgive others, they cannot claim God's forgiveness for themselves. Certainly, this is a fearful eventuality, and this is a sober test of the heart of the professing kingdom servant, kingdom citizen. And notice in the context of our message today in this parable that forgiveness presupposes an actual obligation. That is to say, forgiveness is meaningful if someone is genuinely indebted to you. And what is forgiveness in the context of this parable? They are released of their obligation to you. And you can do this again when you consider the weight of your debt in proportion to that lesser horizontal debt. The horizontal debt, the debt between people, is so much less than the debt that we have been forgiven, that to hold something for a long time that would show a heart of obstinance against a neighbor indicates by a litmus test, by a fruit test, that you do not understand or appreciate the wickedness of your heart and thus the extent of the forgiveness of your judge, of your king, of your loving heavenly father who sent his son to die for you to die for your debt. Finally, that leads us to consider the nature of our debt itself. Turn briefly to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 incorporates in such great summary language the truths of the gospel that are a reality in Christ. Christ's death was indeed a payment. It was indeed an atonement. It was indeed a sufficient sacrifice, inestimable inestimable in its value because of the proportion of debt that it canceled in what was offered on our behalf. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, read as follows. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Powerful debt forgiveness legal language. Powerful. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. 
Matthew 6, 12, in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive those, our debtors, or those who have trespassed against us. The greater, por- or the greater context of Scripture informs us as to the nature of our debt. The nature of our debt is a crime against the infinitely holy God, and proportional justice thus demands an infinite punishment on its behalf. And the only suitable substitute for our suffering in hell eternal is the eternal Lamb that was slain on our behalf. This week I'll post, Seth will post for me on the website under excerpts, a little bit longer exposition or commentary on this text from John Gill. I want to quote a brief paragraph though related to this idea, but I encourage you to check this out and read it in its full detail. He says, Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, or had compassion on him, showed pity to him, and extended mercy towards him, not that he was moved hereunto by any actions of his, as his prostrating uh, himself before him, and his worshiping him, nor by his cries and entreaties, nor by his promises, which were not at all to be depended on, but by his own goodness and will. So that is to say that the goodness and will of the king is what inspires his forgiveness. For not to anything that this man said or did, nor to any deserts of his, but to the pure mercy and free grace of God, is to be ascribed what is after related and loosed him from obligation to punishment and from a spirit of bondage through the guilt of sin and the work of the law upon his conscience and forgave him the debt, the whole debt of 10,000 talents. For when God forgives sin, he forgives all sin, original and actual, secret and open, sins of omission and commission of heart and lip and life of thought of word and deed, past, present and to come, and that freely according to his abundant mercy and the riches of his grace without any regard to any merits, motives, and conditions in the creature, though not without respect to the satisfaction of Christ, which in no ways detracts from the grace and mercy of God, since this is owing to His gracious provision and acceptation. Powerful words. Reaching to the reaches of the vocabulary of the English language to describe the weight of our debt forgiven by the cost of Christ's precious blood. The suffering servant, the long-suffering servant, understands the king is to be feared. He understands the weight of his debt. And finally, this morning, he understands the value of forgiveness. I'd invite you to consider this parable this morning conversely. That is, it's primarily given as a negative illustration. But let's consider the other side of the coin. If we do forgive liberally on account of what Christ has done for us, how might that transform the relationships within the body of Christ? Well, I submit to you, it just might initiate a chain reaction of grace. When we remember what we have been forgiven, ought it not produce a chain reaction of forgiveness to others? Whereas the seedbed, of unforgiveness cultivates certain things, certain fruit. Whereas the seedbed of unforgiveness cultivates greed, anger, self-centeredness, and malice. We see all those things pictured in this parable. Valuing grace 
as the lavishly forgiven inspires lavish forgiveness. And this is the truth of this parable when we are walking in the Spirit, not evidencing the blindness and the hardness of heart of the unforgiving servant, but instead the grateful servant. Do you remember another parable, in fact a story, where ten lepers receive healing from the Lord, but there is one who returns. That leper has considered the value of his healing. Let us be like the one sin leper who returns to Christ, not the one who takes our salvation for granted. Oh, I've been forgiven, so I will go on to live a wanton, carefree life, living as if I haven't the care in the world, and treating everybody not in light of the fearful reality of the cross of Jesus Christ, the bloody crucifix, the payment for my sin, but in light as if I just won a million dollars and I'm going to spend it on anything my sinful heart desires. There's two different ways we can consider the great forgiveness of our God. Let it be for you, saint, a chain reaction of grace. Let us not sow into the seedbed of unforgiveness, fruit of greed, anger, self-centeredness, and malice. But instead, let's model Christ and let's forgive as He did and be motivated by the things that motivated Him. It said, the joy that was set before Christ gave Him the endurance to endure even the cross itself. The word in Hebrews chapter 12 goes on to say that we have not yet resisted unto bloodshed, resisting, striving against sin. So let us look to Christ and let us forgive. And let the forgiveness of Christ ignite a chain reaction of grace and forgiveness in our own lives. Secondly, the value of forgiveness works its way out in practical worship. Consider again our scenario at hand. It says, But when the same servant went out, verse 28, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. I have a question for you. Do you suppose that this servant who stomped down the road to the one who owed him a menial sum, a hundred denarii, do you suppose that servant told this other man what the king had done for him? Do you suppose he let it slip that he had been forgiven $12 billion before he demanded six months' wages? No way. He wanted that hidden He wanted to take it for granted. He didn't want that to be revealed. Otherwise, what would be obvious and evident? Obvious and evident would be the height of absolute, egregious, horrific hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. So what does a hypocrite do? He hides certain things. He negotiates the circumstances. He doesn't give full disclosure. He doesn't testify to what he has been forgiven. And thus we can draw from this reality the following truth. Our forgiveness one to another preaches the gospel. And our unforgiveness one to another denies the gospel. If we so liberally share that we have been forgiven $12 billion worth, as it were, of sin debt, how foolish are we? It holds us accountable, does it not? To say, hey, pay up, pay up. I demand this of you. When we consider the practical application of living in light of Christ's forgiveness, 
we realize a practical way to worship, preaching the gospel by our interaction, our love for one another, obedience to his commands, and the interworking of, yes, difficult human relationships, but suddenly the trials and the offenses are redeemed. The offenses in this scenario, that is, with the chain reaction of grace, become a stage to display the forgiveness of Christ. Let us tell the world that we are forgiven. And if they ask us then, why do you hold this against me? Let us then repent. They have identified hypocrisy in our own heart. Let us repent of that speedily and readily, recognizing again that our King is to be feared the weight of our debt that he paid, and the value of forgiveness. Finally, this morning, if I could hold your attention for a few more moments, I may even be able to make it easier by giving you a historical example. In the early church, around 350, um, after 350, to I think his years, he lived to be about 50 years old. Here's where my math gets fuzzy again. So in the early 400s he died. There lived a man an important man in church history, John Chrysostom. Chrysostom actually is a word, I'm not sure the language means golden-mouthed. Golden-mouthed. Chrysostom was a famous preacher, an effective evangelist, and he was the bishop of Constantinople. I have to credit another preacher, Matt Troella, for giving me this example. This is absolutely fascinating. I reread the history a couple times. But in Constantinople, which was the eastern capital of the dying Roman Empire, The office of bishop was very important. The church had a lot of prestige and power. The negative side of what uh, Tim was sharing with you earlier was no stranger to the circumstances in Constantinople. By the time John Chrysostom was there, the church had uh, had grown drunk with power, and the people were greedy, and the true gospel was not being lived, evidenced, or preached. When he came there, he immediately began to expound the Word of God with authority and began to initiate reforms, welcomed by some, but angered many. One of those, the higher echelons of political authority it angered, was the right-hand man of the emperor's name was Eutropius. Eutropius learned to hate Chrysostom, because Chrysostom preached in such a way that held even the magistrates accountable for their ethical behavior, and Eutropius was certainly a self-serving magistrate. The emperor was, as a lot of other politicians are today, a feeble-minded man who was easily manipulated. His name was Arcadius. So those are our three characters. Arcadius the emperor, Eutropius his right-hand man, and the bishop, the chief preacher in that town, John Chrysostom. Well, events transpired and came to pass that Eutropius changed the laws such that you could no longer find safe refuge in a church he did this so that he could seek out and falsely accuse and execute all of his political enemies. Well, this was a great persecution on the church. The church was no longer able to provide refuge and to interact in society in a mutually beneficial way. The church became more and more marginalized under the policies of this man, and there were certainly tensions, but Chrysostom did not compromise. One day, as the secular writers might record, poetic justice came. But you and I know the providence of God had a day of reckoning for Eutropius. Eutropius overreached in his power. He fell out of favor, 
and he was condemned, and he ran away from the safe confines of the court, no longer safe for him, because a general in the army was intent on slaying him because he was denied a promotion. Eutropius ran. He ran away from the capital, or from that palace, wherever it was in Constantinople, and guess where he ran? He ran straight to the cathedral where John Chrysostom presided, and he beat on the door. Reminds you of the man in the Old Testament who grabbed to the horns of the altar. And he cried out. And that man knew because of the circumstances, begging for mercy alone, that John Chrysostom would provide him safe haven. He did exactly that. John Chrysostom opened the door at the cathedral. And even though the law had been changed by this very man who sought safe haven in the church, offered it to him at the risk of his own punishment under the new law this man was responsible for. This, my friends, is a story I would not be telling you if John Chrysostom had acted as you or I, (laughs) on a weaker moment, are wont to do. Put yourself in his position. Sure, the story sounds noble, and we always can picture ourselves as the hero of history if certain circumstances arrange themselves and we found ourselves in that fortuitous position. But consider it for a moment. This... Man comes to you. It's against the law for you to invite him into the church. In the back of your mind, you think, well, that was a good law. Nevertheless, you have every justifiable reason, externally speaking, to turn this man away. Sorry, the cathedral door closes. I'll leave you to your own devices. Chrysostom did not do any such thing. He invited the man in, and he did use the situation to the gospel's advantage. That man clung trembling to the altar, and when the curtains were swept away for his next sermon, he had about the most powerful sermon illustration you could possibly imagine trembling beside him as thousands of people gathered. Thousands and thousands gathered to hear the Word of God. And to this day, you can read that sermon, and I'll link it online on the website. You can read it in its entirety. He preached the gospel. He preached the gospel of a king who's to be feared, of the weight of our own death, of the truth of our own sin, that none of us are better or worse than Eutropius, but God's grace, the same way that the church has provided him safe haven, has reaching out to you, lost and dying and degenerate and fat with materialism and blind with selfishness, population of Byzantium, of Constantinople. Repent this day. You see this man shaking before you. This ought to be your reaction to your own sin. It was an effective message, needless to say. Later on, Eutropius' hard heart got the best of him. He fled the refuge and confines of the cathedral. But not before John Chrysostom himself marched up to Arcadius the emperor and lobbied to have the law changed so that he could continue to provide safe haven indefinitely for Eutropius. Asked at a later date, Chrysostom said, if he had not ran away, this cathedral would have never released Eutropius. This story is incredibly powerful. But let us ask the question, why? Why does it still ring with profundity in our ears today? I submit to you it is powerful because of a more powerful story that it illustrates. And that is the story of Jesus Christ, who was the slain Lamb of God, 
who paid the ultimate price of injustice, falsely accused, condemned, and crucified to provide safe refuge and haven for you and for me. Let us close this message by considering the cost of our forgiveness. Jesus Christ himself has already begun to declare it in the context of his ministry. 1621, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Chapter 17, 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Chapter 20, Jesus continues to expound the cost of our forgiveness. He says in verse 18, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus offers the cost of forgiveness in the context of these events in Matthew In two short weeks or so, we will celebrate communion here together. I charge you, I exhort you, when you hold that cup and that wafer of bread, consider the cost represented in those elements. Consider the cost. And as you do so, you will realize, as the Holy Spirit works that truth in and through His sanctifying work in your heart, that not forgiving others is to spurn that cost of your forgiveness. And that appreciation of mercy compels us to extend the grace of God in kind to others. And thus we will realize, not just in theory but in practice, that a chief hallmark of Christ's church is our identity as the lavishly forgiven and as such the lavishly forgiving ones. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we've considered with hearts laid bare before the sword of Your Spirit the truth of our salvation laid forth and the gospel of Your Son, Jesus Christ. If this message finds us in need of repentance, may we confess our sins of unforgiveness and any way we may have belittled the great cost and sacrifice and the great sobering weight of our own debt. Lord, in anything we've harbored on the inside. We confess these attitudes of sin, and we embrace your lavish grace this morning as the power to inspire and to equip us to lavishly forgive, to spread your grace. If there are any here who fellowship among us, Lord, and this message hits their ears, not as one who has received the grace of Christ, but one who has not, I pray that it would serve to draw them irresistibly to the throne of grace, to show them their sin, to show them their Savior, that they might cry out, what must I do to be saved? Find the answer in the proclamation of the gospel and then live lives of lavish forgiving and light of your lavish forgiveness. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.